The man in charge of sonic motivation for players. DJ extraordinaire. The official DJ of your Edmonton Oilers. For the NHL hub. DJ for the Stanley Cup playoffs. Of the World Junior Hockey Championship. John Hicks. John Hicks. John Hicks, a.k.a. Johnny Infamous. Johnny Infamous. Johnny Infamous. Johnny Infamous. A shout out to DJ Infamous in the building at Rogers Place, keeping the energy up. Yep. Welcome to Between Whistles with your host, Johnny Infamous. Brought to you by the Hockey Podcast Network. Presented by DraftKings. Baseball is back, and the leader in fantasy sports is putting you on the field with a free shot at the millions of dollars in total prizes. It's easy to play. Just pick 10 players, stay under the salary cap, and pile up points for hits, runs, strikeouts, and more. There's no better way to put your baseball knowledge to the test. Download the DraftKings app and use promo code THPN to get a shot at millions of dollars up for grabs. Welcome back to the show, everyone. As always, I appreciate those who have downloaded each episode and subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. It's Johnny Infamous. And as we edge closer to the NHL's postseason, we are bringing in some amazing guests. Get ready for some incredible stories in the coming weeks. You'll definitely want to view the visual version of the show where we paint the full picture. Head over to YouTube and search Between Whistles or over to Twitch and follow me at Johnny Infamous. Speaking of great guests, today's is no exception. I could really do a three-part series on this man. Today's episode is actually one of two episodes this season where we're going to be exploring one of the most iconic arenas in the NHL and the world for that matter. I'm, of course, talking about Madison Square Garden in New York City. Now, there's a lot of people behind the scenes in MSG and in game presentation in general who are musically inclined. I'm talking about those arena DJs, organists, music directors, in-game performers, and the folks who compose and produce the audio elements we hear at sporting events. Now, this guy I got on the show today does all of that. And arguably, he does it better than anyone else. Not only has he been doing it for four decades, he could be the greatest sports DJ in the world. He's a legendary pro sports musician and producer. He's been in the industry for over 30 years. If you're talking about game presentation in NYC, including his name in the combo is a must. He's been the DJ and or organist for the Rangers, Knicks, Mets, Giants. Uh, he's played organ at the Stanley Cup Finals, the World Series, the NBA Finals, and all three of the former league's all-star games, not to mention NCAA games, Pro Bowl, you name it. Uh, he wrote the Rangers goal song Slapshot and helped create the biggest selling sports music compilation series of all time. I'm talking about jock jams. I don't know if there's anyone more embedded in the history of in-game audio coordination today. He is the music director at the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden. I'm honored to have Ray Castoldi joining me today. Ray, welcome to Between Whistles. Thanks, Johnny. Appreciate, uh, <laughs> appreciate that introduction, and uh, thanks for having me. I mean, I feel like it could be 10 pages long. Uh, I mean, where to begin? Let's just start with a simple question. Uh, where did your love of music... Uh, playing the organ, playing music, DJing, uh, come from? I mean, really all the way back to when I was a kid. Uh, I started at the piano when I was about eight years old and, you know, loved music, loved sports as well, was better at music than I was at sports. You know, I think that I can vividly remember going to baseball games with my dad, which is where love of sports usually starts, right? But also mm -hmm. love of music because I can remember going, there's an organist at these games. There's somebody playing. And I remember, you know, being at Fenway Park, for instance, and seeing, you know, that John Kiley had a record album on sale at the concession stand. I'm like, 
wow, the organist has a record out. That's that, that got filed away somewhere in my young brain. You know, and of course, going down to hear Jane Jarvis at Shea Stadium, hearing Eddie Layton play at the Yankees. You know, for me, it was always like, you know, it was baseball, it was the sport, but also the music at the sports, and particularly the organists in those days. So piano, organ, you were also really into DJing, though, back in the 80s in New York, being a club DJ. I mean, that's such a pivotal time in history of DJing, club music, and the scene in general. Uh, tell me a bit about that. Yeah, those were crazy days. You know, I moved down to New York from Boston uh, in the late 80s, and I had a group called Frequency X. It was an electronic duo, DJ and keyboards and samplers and sequencers. And we would play it primarily at the Limelight, which is the old uh, club on 6th Avenue that was a former church during the, the techno years and the club kid years. And we put out a few records. And I also put out a few records under my own imprint, X-Ray Records, uh, which are still getting reissued here and there. So there's some popularity in those. Uh, kind of on the house tip, on the techno tip, very much in tune with what was going on in those days. So even those gigs were a combination of you know, DJing, but also playing keyboards and working all that stuff together into a different kind of a form. And I kind of took that into my first audition at the Knicks. Yeah, as you were saying, your first foray into the world of sports was with the Knicks. How do you land a gig like that? Well, like like anything, you take an audition, you know, and, and uh, I heard about an audition at the Knicks from a guitar player friend of mine. Uh, the Knicks at that time were not using the organ. They had moved on from Eddie Layton and they were just using some like a cart machine like you had at a radio station to play da 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 over and over again. And they were going, huh, maybe we should bring back a live organist, but we need someone who can like start to work in the songs of today, recorded music that they were starting to bring in already. So I took the audition in 1989. And, you know, I kind of thought to myself, I've got that kind of skill set. You know, I could definitely play these kind of musical cliches, the prompters and things like that on the keyboard that they had at the time. And I know how to pick records to move a room. So let's give this a shot. And I figured I'd do it for about a year and then move on to something else. <laughs> you know, but I'm kind of stuck uh, with it. So um, I started with the Knicks in late 89. There's the Knicks of Patrick Ewing and Charles Oakley. And, you know, they were just uh, coming out of the bomb squad years with they still had Kenny Walker and Trent Tucker and uh, Johnny Newman and those guys. And they were, you know, about to become like a big sensation in New York when Pat Riley showed up and the 90s just rolled on. But I got in sort of at the beginning of that. It was a great time to, to jump aboard. Now, the same year you become the Rangers DJ, how did everything with that unfold and you suddenly find yourself as the music director for MSG? It took a few years to get there. Um, you know, I was pretty much, you know, an independent contractor when I started with the Knicks. And by the time I added on the Rangers, which was uh, 1991, uh, it wasn't until kind of the late 90s where they were like, okay, look, we're doing all this stuff. We're adding other events at the Garden. Let's get a Pro Tool system in here as well. And we can turn this into a full-time music director job where you're really composing music, editing music for the dance teams and cutting music for video and doing sound design as well as DJing and playing the organ at all the games. Yeah, that's a perfect segue into my next question. I mean, how has the tools you've used to do your job over the years evolved? I mean, what was in the booth when you stepped in there in 89 uh, compared to what's in there today? I mean, in some ways it was a different world. In some ways, not too much has changed, but they had a cart machine, like a radio station cart machine where you put these carts in. That was kind of you know, a little janky. Uh, and they had a keyboard. Uh, so it was a little rough to start with. But you have to remember at that point, event presentation was rather primitive. There was no center hung scoreboard in the arena. There were no dance teams. We didn't put the lights out for the introductions. I mean, you know, in those days you could still smoke at the games in the arena. So they were just trying to get, get the smokers out at that point. So things have really come a long way. You know, over the years, we've 
tricked out the keyboard at two manuals and then added pedals and added sound modules. But at a certain point, it was like, look, let's just get a real organ, a piece of furniture that weighs 500 pounds and that's not going anywhere. And so that was like just such an accomplishment in, in my view, just to get an organ, which you really think is kind of a throwback because at some point they had an actual organ. You can see pictures of it with Eddie Layton playing on it. You can listen to Eddie Layton playing the, the national anthem at game seven of the 1970 finals. But that organ was gone, long gone by the time I got there. And it's sort of been a long road back. And then on the DJ side, well, we've added, we've come a long way to, you know, going from, you know, carts and cassette tapes uh, to more conventional CD players to the kind of mixing equipment with Serato and, uh, and, and controllers that you would have nowadays that really can emulate what a DJ will do in terms of beat matching and triggering cue points and things like that. And of course, we added a lot of samplers along the way too. So you can throw in all the sound effects and uh, the little sound bites after guys score baskets and things like that. You know, but on the other hand, we still keep a pair of turntables around, you know, uh, occasionally we'll bring in you know, a guest DJ or, you know, one of us will go downstairs and be the guest DJ for the night and you want to really do it in an authentic way and we'll throw the turntables up. And mm. so it's kind of like, huh, if you go, well, we've got, an, you know, we've got an organ and we've got turntables, you can go, well, it might as well be 1980s again, you know? <laughs> yeah. For people who don't know, you know, sometimes there could be up to three people. There could be an in-game DJ, there could be a music director, there could be an organist. You're doing all this yourself. Uh, and again, I know you touched on the new organ. You've got the Roland model now, right? Inside MSG. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's 18900. Yeah, so same one uh, the Edmonton Oilers actually have now for the last few years and you really can tell right away between canned and live organ and also between a keyboard and and the instrument you're using now, right? Yeah, you really can. I mean, the the difference between canned and live is just uh so dramatic because the um, if you're playing canned organ prompters, the the emotional tone is always the same no matter the situation of the game. And when someone is performing live, it's like when you're yelling at your team to do better. You know, if you're a fan at the beginning of the game, you'll be like, yeah, come on, come on, come on. And late in the game, you're like, come on, come on. And you can do that through the instrument. If you're playing it live, you can get that kind of emotional punch behind it that you just can't do if you have, you know, a set of canned organ prompters. And as far as the tone goes, there's something about um, an actual organ uh, the electronics that goes into this machine. It's warm, it's rich. The bass on those pedals really makes all the difference. Uh, but, you know, it really creates a full sound that really hits you is one way to describe it. Yeah, it's really a different world. So you touched a bit on the 90s. I mean, you were doing a lot of things in the early and late 90s. Uh, you released a bunch of, I guess, deep house music EPs yeah. on your X-Ray label. You also mentioned you're part of the act uh, Frequency X. Uh, you were also signed to Radical Records. And this label, for people who don't know, distributed the first import of a song that has since become probably the most well-known NHL in-game pump-up track ever, uh, Two Unlimiteds, Get Ready for This. Now, the reason I bring this up you can probably already guess uh tell me the story how did you become connected and eventually a collaborator on the now legendary jock jam series i mean it's it's interesting that you bring up radical because i can remember when jorgen kurlich who ran the label handed me a couple of cd singles from this group called two unlimited going you know ray things might work at the game you know the, the understatement of the decade right <laughs> these two singles that uh you know nobody had heard in the states yet 
I'm like, yeah, I think that we can give this a try. It's the kind of music that I think people might get into at the games. And, you know, those two songs between Get Ready for This and Twilight Zone just became total staples, you know, of sports music, uh, really kind of signified the 90s. And yeah, those two ended up on Jock Jams, of course. Got started with Jock Jams through a connection with Tommy Boy Records. Tommy Boy was distributed by Warner Brothers and they had a suite at the Garden. And so people would, would call me to ask, you know, what's that song you played in the second period the other night? What's that song you played at the, in the fourth quarter for the Nick game? And I was like, wow, wouldn't it be great to be able to put these songs in one place on one CD where people could get a hold of them? Some of the records at that point were pretty much out of print. You had to find these songs on compilations, you know, no Shazam, no iTunes. You had to go scour record stores to try to find some of these songs and you had to kind of know what you were looking for. Tommy Boy had the same idea. So we got together and talked about how we could put out a record album. They had a connection with ESPN, uh, so we could market the thing through ESPN. And ESPN and Tommy Boy present Jock Jams, the hottest crowd puppet sports jams of all time. Jock Jams, available at record stores everywhere. And we had this idea of like, let's also add the sort of the sounds of a sporting experience. So let's add in, you know, some of the organ playing. Let's have some uh, cheerleaders doing their cheers. Let's get a like a pep band to do their thing. Uh, hot dog vendors, you know, any of those ideas that we had, we would go out and record these people. We did a lot of field recordings and uh, added them into the mix as well to give you kind of an immersive sports experience. And, you know, they sold amazingly. They were, they were a pop cultural sensation. We really thought they would be good and relatively popular. You never expect something to blow up as big as that did. And then we just kept uh, you know, churning them out. There were so many songs to put on. We just made volume after volume. I feel like we could do a whole interview just on jock jams, but I want to touch on some other parts of your career because you've done a lot of cool stuff in terms of writing and production. And speaking of that, let's get back to MSG and hockey. The Rangers break the curse in 94, win a Stanley Cup. In January 95, you unveil this now iconic new goal song, Slapshot. This is a song you wrote, you produced yourself. First of all, uh, did the Rangers want you to create a custom goal song? Is this something you just cooked up and, and brought to them as a surprise? Uh, what's the backstory there? They were interested. They were interested in changing it up, the energy around winning the Stanley Cup. You know, they kind of felt like if they could have something uh, that was original to the team, that way another team couldn't use it. You know, having something unique was important. So we talked over the summer about writing the song up. But then I just kind of went out and wrote it. I'm, you know, I, I brought it into them pretty much fully formed. I thought it would work. And they were like, okay, great. Let's, let's go ahead and get a band to record this. And that was a strike shortened, lockout shortened year. So we started in January and we unveiled it that night when the banner went up. 
In the late 90s, Rangers fans had the pleasure of seeing the great one, Wayne Gretzky, end his pro career in New York at MSG. Uh, what was it like watching Wayne play in those years? Um, well, terrific. I mean, when he got there, you know, the Rangers were a couple of years from the Cup. Uh, Mark Messier was still there with them. So that first year of Wayne and Mark together, I remember MSG Networks created an odd couple takeoff for a TV spot with the two of them. And <laughs> On June 13th, Wayne Gretzky left his place of residence never to return. Not knowing exactly where to go, he found himself on the team of his friend Mark Messier. Can two men with different styles play together without driving each other insane? Stay tuned. The Rangers take on the Flyers Saturday, 3 Eastern, 12 Pacific on Fox. That kind of captured a nice uh, theme, and the team went to the conference finals that year. I remember uh, Wayne Gretzky had a hat trick against uh, Florida in one of the games. It, you know, th those moments definitely stick with you. It was amazing to watch the guy operate. I remember that uh, for his retirement game, they painted 99 on the ice behind the net as Gretzky's office because he just stood back there, you know, dishing out assists. Or he'd throw it off the goalie's back. I mean, you know, <laughs> I hear he played a couple games in Edmonton, too, so you guys probably know. <laughs> yeah, I had to touch on Wayne and just get your thoughts on that because it's just so incredible that he got to end his career. He always says MSG was such a special place and just an amazing way to end the career. Uh, you've also done your fair share of traveling around the world uh, to do what you do on a global scale several times for the Olympics. Uh, Turin, Sochi, just to mention a few. Are there any Olympic games you can remember that were a favorite of yours? I can remember vividly, both in Sochi and in Torino, as I would hang out with you know the local staff, um, eating, drinking, exploring the cities. One of the things that they would do is they would hit me to like certain melodies, right? Italian melodies. And I would, you know, either dig up the sheet music or, you know, have them sing it into a phone so I could learn the thing. And then I would use those melodies at the games. And, you know, you're there for three weeks or, or more. So you have time to really kind of polish things up. And, you know, I can definitely remember, you know, some of the Italian melodies and, and Russian melodies from the Second World War. You play them and everyone's clapping along to them. And they and it's like, oh, OK, the guy upstairs is thinking, you know, he's 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 playing music that I can relate to as well. So that was really that, just a great experience, great connection. Probably the game that sticks out for me the most was the USA-Russia game uh, at Sochi. I just had to pinch myself. I couldn't believe I'm playing for a USA-Russia game in Russia. USA fans waving their flags, chanting USA. Russian fans with the old USSR flags, with the Russian flags. And of course, that game, there was a disallowed goal uh, for the Russians that would have tied it. It went to a shootout. Uh, TJ Oshie scored somewhere in the shootout. It was just a phenomenal day. That's the game that will always stick out for me. One of the sports highlights of my career. So you're doing the Rangers, you're doing the Knicks. At what point did baseball come calling? Um, this was back in the 90s as well. The Mets were looking to add some live organ. They hadn't had a live organist since Jane Jarvis left in 79. Um, so I jumped at the chance. It was just so much fun to go out there. And I, So I was at the Met Games live from 97. They had me start on Jackie Robinson night in 1997, which was uh, the inaugural Jackie Robinson night. The commissioner was there. President Clinton was there. The place was loaded with celebrities and uh, kicking off the tribute to Jackie Robinson and announcing the league-wide retirement of his number, 42. 
you know, for me, it was um, just an opportunity to really kind of circle back around my kind of love affair with music and sports started at baseball. So here's an opportunity to sit at baseball games and play the organ. I'll look for some cool prompters to play and, and play Take Me Out to the Ball Game and kind of channel channel Eddie Layton, you know, channel John <laughs> Kiley and Gladys Gooding and all the all the historical uh, organists. I love that you mentioned some of the greats there. Um, Again, between the Knicks and Rangers, Giants, Mets, uh, you've got a lot of pretty different animals there in terms of how games unfold. How do you adapt between different sports, different teams? And do you have a favorite type of sport you prefer to soundtrack? You know, they all have their own dynamic, as you're saying, Johnny. It's very different across the boards. At baseball for me, and again, being in the organ chair specifically at a baseball game, I think it's a sunny day. You got a hot dog and a beer. It's a pastime. You got all day. Let's play a couple of songs. It's going to be, for me, a more relaxed atmosphere. Contrast that with hockey, right, where you're leaning on the edge of your seat the whole time. It's at Hockey, it's all about anticipation and building up, hoping your team will score that goal and when's it going to happen. And then sort of the explosion when you do get the goal and then the celebration after. Basketball might be happening in the same building, but it's going to have a little bit more of a soulful bounce to it. The game is sort of continuous action. I think that, um, I think I got to say hockey. I know we're on a you know hockey podcast and all that, but I think hockey is the best sport to be at in person. I think that it's just such a gripping sport that just draws you in. For me, it's probably the most difficult sport to entertain people at because of the gaps and waiting for the breaks to drop the perfect song or the perfect notes in. And that gives it a challenge level for me. I was just thinking how, you know, I brought people to the games, especially some of my friends from uh, London, because we've done NFL work over there. And they come over to, to New York. I'm like, you got to go to the Rangers. And they're just like, yeah, we got football. We have rugby. We kind of know what hockey must be like. And they go to the hockey and they're like, this is brilliant. They let them hit. They let them fight. And the game is amazing. I've heard that time and again with people. And they go to a hockey game live. They're just like, oh, my God, that was so much more than I thought it was going to be. Just so gripping. You've had the unique perspective of being inside MSG in so many different decades. And the city of New York has been through so much in the time you've been music director. I mean, 9-11, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter protests. I could go on and on. New York, the city in general, really does have this knack for being a window into how the world is feeling at any given time. But the recent pandemic, I mean, this is something none of us had ever imagined or experienced. Uh, New York, obviously one of the hardest hit places with the virus. What were fans and yourself feeling in the days leading up to the suspension of the 2020 NHL season? And how did you cope and help others cope inside MSG? Yeah, I mean, it was a very, very difficult time. And, you know, this is something that's affected everybody all across the country, all across the continent. You kind of could feel it coming in late February. We did a stretch of games. It was, I think, nine nights in a row. Knicks, Rangers just alternating. You know, we were going about our business. They hadn't canceled any of the citywide functions yet. Like the St. Patrick's Day Parade was the thing that was hanging out there. But we were doing things, you know, we had the hand sanitizer out. We were wiping down the equipment nightly, but we were still doing our shows full on 20,000 people screaming, let's go Rangers night after night. And then, you know, all of a sudden that was done. You know, once the NBA shut down, we kind of knew that, uh, you know, that we were heading the same way across the boards with sports. Um, I was there in the arena for the Big East tournament that Thursday morning, uh, the day after, because the Big East was going on. But, you know, we made it to halftime of the first game and then that tournament was canceled and we were sent home. When you have something like that, right, you, you don't know how to react to it. You don't know what to expect. 
because it's never happened to anybody before, really in our lifetimes. You want to go back 100 years or so. There aren't many people that, that remember that kind of pandemic situation. Things move very, very quickly when, uh, when it happens. I kind of feel like things are starting to move quickly the other direction now, which is great. I'm always the optimist here. But it does seem like things are you know, moving back to getting more people vaccinated, opening up uh, sports to fans, opening up restaurants to patrons, and getting a handle on this thing. I was going to say that next. You've got fans back in the building now since you were saying February. Nowhere near full capacity, but it must be nice to be connecting with people in some way again. Uh, how are things going inside the garden as we try to start to get back to the uh, new normal? It's, it's just so great having the fans back in the building. We're running about 2,000 fans a game. You know, but if you're going to come to the Knicks or the Rangers right now, you've got to get a test. You've got to do social distancing and wear your mask. So it's a pretty self-selecting group of people that are willing to go through that. And they are loud. These people are not there to, to be looking at their phones or, you know, trying to find, you know, celebrities or whatever. So for 2,000 people, uh, they make a ton of noise. You know, having started this up in December with the Knicks, it was dark. It was cold. There was nobody in the building. We were running a very skeleton crew. We had a couple of people doing the scoreboard show. We had me running back and forth between the organ and the DJ equipment. It was tough and you had no fans there, but we were putting on the best possible show that we could for the players and for the fans at home. And having people come back in the building where you kind of go, oh yeah, that's right. This is what my job's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be entertaining fans, getting them in a good mood, getting them up to yell for the team, getting them up to dance and have fun. It's just so great having the fans back at any level back mm. in the building. Well, Ray, your impact on sports entertainment is like no other. I could sit here and talk with you all day, but we only have a 20 minute show. I, I hope you'll come back and chat with me again when fans are literally filling up the garden to the rafters again, hopefully as soon as it's safe to do so. But thank you again for joining me today and uh, all the best. Oh, thanks for having me, Johnny. Really a blast. Really appreciate it. And hope to see you again. Thanks. What a ride that was. Again, if you haven't checked out the visual version of our show, this episode is one I encourage you to take in on your phone or tablet as the pictures of MSG and videos of these moments Ray talked about are just so iconic to New York and sports in general. Uh, Between Whistles is on YouTube and Twitch. Go check it out now. My name is Johnny Infamous. As always, you can follow me for highlights from the show on Twitter and be sure to give the boys at the Hockey Podcast Network a follow as well for more great content and shows about every team in the NHL. I will see you next week. Until then, be good to each other. Join Johnny Infamous every Wednesday at noon for Between Whistles. Subscribe and watch live on YouTube or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by the Hockey Podcast Network. Presented by DraftKings. Use promo code THPN to unlock rewards at DraftKings.com.